it seems like a lot to do to become indistractable. It's actually something anyone can do. And to be very clear, becoming indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. I, I still get distracted from time to time. And I, I wrote the darn book. <laughs> it took me five years of research to write it. And I still get distracted because being indistractable, you know, I made up the, the term. I can define it any way I want. It doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means you understand why you got distracted so that you can do something about it. So an indis a, a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same things again and again and again. You know, Puello Coelho, he had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So distractible people keep getting distracted by the same things and don't do anything about it. How many times can we complain about Facebook or the news or whatever distracting us before we say enough? <laughs> An indistractable person says, okay, you got me once. Now I know why, because every distraction only has one of three potential causes, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. And so there is no distraction we can't overcome as long as we plan ahead. Indistractable people take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. Hello, and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where we explore really fun topics and we go deep on it and really try to give you valuable lessons. It's all in the area of health, happiness, curiosities, expertise, and any of the rabbit holes we're very curious about. We're most welcome for your time. Thank you very much for joining us. I think curiosity is definitely the key there. It's like, yeah. oh, this is interesting. Let's, yeah. let's talk to this person. Are they around? Boom. Yay! <laughs> yeah, it really is. We've jumped around so many different topics. So, yeah. And um, I want to ask you guys, because like I was thinking the other day, obviously I've worked with you for years and you've had the happy pair since 2004 when you were like, what, 24. But what other? I know you planted trees for a while, Steve. What other actual jobs have you had or have you had? I feel like you guys have never had actual jobs. Uh, we, I've never had a real grown up job. Like, you know, we were what kind of. What does a grown up job mean? Uh, like a proper like one. Career path. We, yeah, yeah. And then we never had a career. We never had a career. Like, we, we got fired from most of our jobs. We worked in the golf club. We worked in the video what shop. The, we worked in what the was garage. The funniest I in, thing you got fired for? Um, or the strangest or the most memorable? Uh, the, the one that I couldn't understand, like, our first job, we got fired because we just kept forgetting to show up to work. Oh, was the beach We'd be out in the golf course and be like, oh, Dave. We were meant to work three hours ago. Ah, well, that should be time for another. So wait, you always went to jobs together. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pretty twins, you tended to live in each other's pockets. But Two for the, I, the, one. the one that I couldn't understand, we got a job in a hospital, a local unnamed hospital. Uh, Dave got a job there and he used to give out the night tea. So he'd walk around the kind of corridors and would you like tea and do you want milk and sugar? And he'd give him a sandwich. It was no. a great job. It was really and, good. And Dave did Monday nights, but he couldn't work Wednesday nights. We said, Steve, are you going to do it? And he kind of... He, I don't he think... Now you're taking, you're taking poetic license there. I think it was more, I had the job and I was earning 50 quid a night and you were like, that's not fair. You got a job. I want to... Give me half your job. Dave and Probably, it was like yeah. yeah I think that was more the reality <laughs> so, so Dave kind of trained me like at home what I was to do so I went in like and I kind of described the person who was there like it was never let on that we were twins so I went in as David and did Dave's job and kind of fumbled my way through and got away with it so we did this for a number of months and I assumed like that the manager knew we were twins and I was like surely you know we're twins like there's two of us and she couldn't understand it and she was like outraged and we got fired instantly yeah, that's, that's, uh, you uh, got uh, away with it. For I know, months. but it was, the same, it was the same one in Coopers. We worked in Coopers restaurant when we were sixteen, oh my and, God, and Coopers, and it was yeah, Coopers, do you remember? Yeah, yeah. and uh, and I remember it was gas because it was Stephen's job, and he drew out the full kitchen. We were KP, so we were like head pot wallopers and I remember Steve drew out the full kitchen he had, he had uh, drawn pictures of each of the characters in the kitchen who they were <laughs> how they kind of are, are who's more inflammable than the other where you put things back and like if you've ever done a KP job like it's 
there's a lot of things you need to know. And Stephen was trying to train me at home before I went to the kitchen. So I had to come down and go, hiya, John. Hi, Larry. You must be Larry. And, uh, and work away. And yeah, we got fired again. From How home. old were you guys when you did these? Uh, I think like I think 15 we held or on to the Cooper's one for a while. But we definitely got fired like because one of us did forgot to show up or something or other, you know. That, that was what is invariably amazing. happened. Yeah, yeah. So for anyone listening who has a habit of getting fired, us too. So what were you like with, with authority, like notoriously? with? How are you with someone Oh, we were very good with authority. We were grand with authority. It was just more like we were quite autonomous that we kind of forget to come or you'd be out at something. You go, ah, listen, it's all right. You know, we weren't that bothered by the work really. so in school would you guys get in trouble a lot in school or was it innocent trouble innocent more innocent trouble, trouble. Innocent yeah, trouble. Yeah, yeah we kind of cared trouble. and we were kind of hard, like liked working but also liked a bit of distraction a bit of you know fun as well so do you yeah. think your teachers liked you yes largely yeah yeah, yeah, yeah by yeah, and large yeah because yeah, yeah. Yeah. we were respectful we were respectful but we enjoyed a bit of mess but a bit too. stupid as well <laughs> a little bit of that the lovable idiots <laughs> you absolutely hit the nail on the head there and then when we were and then when we were 16 we, we started Stephen used to sell fake IDs in school when we were like 15 don't tell anyone yeah, how did you anyone. make them uh, I used to go up to we didn't have a printer at home this guy I think it was Mark or Lord. I some, think we did have a printer at one stage but there was a printer that Steve used to print DIT uh, IDs and then he square. used to get a friend to laminate them and that was a long time ago now so we can't be pinned for that anymore That's, uh, <laughs> I remember I used to have uh, Lisa Lisa's five years or four and a half years older than me and I used to take her ID that worked loads but uh, then I remember um we used to always be like, okay, testing each other and what's your star sign? Because there was some weird thing that we thought bouncers would always know your star sign and that's what you question. You'd always be so nervous, like, what's your star sign? Do you know your star sign? Oh, of course I do. I remember going to one, uh, like, where was it? It was probably, did you ever go to Old Wesley? Was that? Yeah, I don't think we Not ever really yeah. were. Okay. I think we loved the idea of it, but you we went never to really Latrex, allowed. Yeah, 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 that was down the road, yeah. But um, I remember going there and then the bouncer was like, oh, hi, Lisa. How, how was your night last night? Wasn't it fun? And I was just looking and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, it's Lisa's <laughs> friend. What do I do? Yes. And he let me in anyway. <laughs> oh, guess, guess. But there you go. Ireland's like very that. strict normally on IDs, I swear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Shall we talk about the podcast? We we should. Is it time? Okay, great. Quick one, wait, quick one before. Um, so with your own kids, how, what will your kind of... How, how strict will you be? what would your reprimand be for them getting fired or anything like that I think well, ours was part ours was part down to because there was two of us and it would not, neither of us were responsible we used to share jobs so then there was joint responsibility which we've lo- subsequently learned is no responsibility so neither of us really cared yeah we kind of found out that if it was joint responsibility we'd fall down the middle of the couch and neither of us would hold it so. do you think much has changed now in the hobby bear <laughs> uh, well this this actually this episode honestly okay on the topic of this episode this was one of the most impactful episodes I've listened to like there hasn't been an episode where after we finish it we're all like Reevaluating how we work and oh my god all the issues that we have and whatnot like it, it's a really it's a class no episode. more to-do lists all about box schedules boxed calendars like in terms of like work productivity performance efficiency but those a- words sound like robotic it's I know, more about sound cold it's and more about f- following your dreams and valuing what's important like I think this is so important because particularly me and Stephen maybe you who's listening you might be a really organised structured calendared type person me and Stephen are not um and this was just like, oh my God, this was like a piece of the puzzle, a missing piece of the puzzle. Well, time is your most valuable asset, right? Yeah, yeah, we don't care. And about it's all yeah. about even scheduling in when you want to be spontaneous, which doesn't sound very spontaneous, but it's so you're, what, what, what was the word, term again about distraction? Indistractable. Distraction. 
Attraction. 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 Yeah, but, but even I like the idea that the irony of spontaneity is it needs like the more like the irony of structure is that it gives more freedom. And similar, the idea, the uh, spontaneity needs boundaries. If there's no boundary around it, it's just psh. exactly. So, so, so can I just say so? So we're as you saw in the thumbnail, whatever you clicked there, <laughs> yeah. it's with Nir Al, which is a super cool name. He's a really amazing man. Really, is what a wonderful, Written two glorious international man. best-selling books, hooked and indistractable. And today's conversation is largely about how you can be more indistractable at achieving the life you want. And that's that's a made-up word, indistractable. So it really means about focus and prioritization. And they sound boring and unglamorous, but oh my God, this man knows a lot of really cool stuff. To, to yeah. everyone. And I think if you can move beyond the kind of masculine approach or the kind of cold kind of productivity, efficiency, you know, kind of the negation of fe- feelings. I think it's, there's, there's, there's a nugget in it for everyone. Yeah. And he's all about kind of doing the hard work. So there is an element of stoicism. And just to give you context about Nir Eyal, he's written two, as Stephen said, two international bestselling books. He was a lecturer in Harvard Graduate Business School. In Stanford. Oh, Stanford Business School. He started three businesses and sold two of them. And uh, a father that now lives in Singapore and really, really interesting man. I think you'll get a huge amount of this in terms of planning, organizing organization, structure, how to avoid distraction, really, because we live in such a busy age where there's so many opportunities for distraction. And he gives so many nuggets of how to kind of how to protect yourself. And protection isn't even the word. It's how to become more aware of these things. Even to have a better relationship with your loved ones. Yeah. 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 Leaning into the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. Internal triggers, external triggers. Oh, my God. I took after about 10 minutes into this episode, I just reflect my notes like that means I stopped uh, looking at my notes and I just started writing notes because it was <laughs> such gold coming out of his mouth it's like oh my god this is class like anyway a- ladies and gentlemen without further ado we give you the wonderful near AL but before we do as a society, we need a gut health revolution. So many of us, due to the fact that we eat an industrial diet of processed food, predominantly animal foods, and very little whole foods, many of us struggle with bloating, IBS, IBD, just have issues around food. Food is meant to bring us together, to help celebrate life. It's to punctuate occasions. And for many of us, food just sees pain and digestive discomfort. So anyway, your, your gut is where 70% of your immune system cells are. It directly impacts the foods that you desire, the foods that you crave. It impacts your moods, your emotions, your energy levels, and so many basic, simple things. We've got a four-week course. You can sign up and join it. It's with a gastroenterologist, dietitian, ourselves, and a mindfulness uh, IBD uh, holistic therapist. It's really fantastic. We have more than 25,000 people. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's called Good Health Revolution. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Near Al. But maybe, maybe even just to, to, to move into that direction of focus and attention and becoming more intentional with our time. Like, what is the current, like, what is your view on the current state? Like, if you look at industrialized nations, you look in kind of first world countries, what Western culture, whatever kind of word you want to use for the more um, affluent countries in the world. How, how do you see the state of our focus and our attention and our indistractability? I think it's more than anything, problems of abundance. Uh, and these are very good problems to have, uh, that in fact, distraction is nothing new. Uh, Plato talked about the problem of akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest 2,500 years ago. So our technologies did not invent distraction. Uh, what's, what we have today is that we have such an abundance of options 
that we need to face the price of progress. The price of progress is we have to learn some new ways to live with this stuff. That uh, when you live in an age of information being at your fingertips, uh, you can speak, you know, look, we're, we're talking right now over thousands of miles for free <laughs> on these amazing video phone devices. I mean, this is, this is Buck Rogers type stuff. If you would have told me this stuff would exist uh, when I was in my 40s, if you would have told me that when I was in my teens, I would have said, you're crazy. Uh, and yet here we are. And so the price of all this progress is that we have to learn how to deal with it. Just like uh, the, the, the fact that we live in an age of abundance when it comes to calories. Right. So there's a, I think there's an information diet as well. So when it comes to our physical uh, diet, right, when it comes to our, the calories that we ingest, uh, you know, this is the first time in human history that more people die from diseases of excess, obesity, diabetes, than of starvation. That's never happened in the past 200,000 years of human history. And so what do we have to do? We have to adapt and we have to adopt. And this is what we've always done as human beings. Uh, every new technology requires us to adapt our behaviors and adopt new technologies that uh, do away with the bad aspect of the last generation of technology. And so what you see now, the past few years, we've had this obesity epidemic that this disease of abundance in the industrialized world uh, has meant that now people don't starve <laughs> generally. In fact, that we have the opposite problem, people overeat. So what does that mean? We have to learn how to deal with an age of abundance. And so we see various uh, uh, you know, ways of adjusting our behavior. The crisis of, of obesity certainly isn't over does seem to be taking a turn, by the way, many people don't know that actually the obesity crisis is getting better as people learn how to uh, eat healthfully. And I think we're going to see the same thing happening with our information diets, that right now we are gorging on the abundance of information between social media and YouTube and Google and our phones. There's so much abundance of, of things to do with our time and attention that if we're not careful, we're going to be in a situation of information obesity where we, uh, we use what is an otherwise great thing to excess. And that's a big problem because the world is really bifurcating into two types of people, people who allow their time and attention to be controlled and manipulated by others and people who stand up and say, nope, I am indistractable. I control my time. I control my attention. I choose my life. Wow, uh, but I think it's, it's, I think even uh, can, uh, please, I'm dying okay, to go great. into this one. Uh, we're both excited. We're both excited. But I think that comes back down to like people's like you know there's it, it's finding the right balance with life because sometimes when you get too autonomous and too intentional with your life that you've scheduled at your 15 minutes that you're cutting out the spontaneity you can miss out on the kind of, you know, there's like each one of us has our own intentions of how we want our life to be, but as most kind of world class experts in various degrees will go well like I was just doing this one thing and then something else happened and I, my whole life went in a different course and it's kind of I, I think there has to be that balance between being intentional and also being open to spontaneity and what do you think in terms of that uh no <laughs> oh great, oh, great. I'll, tell I'll tell you why I disagree the research just just doesn't support it that the vast majority of people their problem is not that they're not spontaneous enough the problem is that they can't focus on the hard stuff long enough to finish what they want to do with their time and attention in their life. And so because of the fear of, well, I don't want to be too rigid. I want to be spontaneous. I want to see where life takes me. They don't build the skill that is absolutely essential to get anything great done. They can't focus, especially in this day and age when distraction is in your pocket anytime you want it. And so most people don't struggle with not being spontaneous enough. 
<laughs> most people struggling with actually finishing what they know they want to do with their time and attention. And look, this is the wrong episode to listen to if your life is perfect, okay? If you exercise when you say you will, if you eat right, if you do what you say you're going to do at work, if you are on top of your sales calls, if you're spending quality time with your family every night like you say you will, if you're finishing everything on your to-do list, wrong episode, right? There's not many of those I think you've, you've ticked everyone off there. <laughs> exactly. That Unless you're a retiree or a child, you need to plan your time. Why? Because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say this again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. And so most people have these huge blocks of white space on their calendar because they want to be spontaneous. They want to leave time to do, you know, spontaneous fun things and be ready for adventure. But the adventure never happens because they're on Facebook or checking email or watching the goddamn news for more time, worrying about somebody's problems thousands of miles away, as opposed to living the life we deserve right now. So I'm not saying you need to plan down every 15 minutes or, or be productive with your time every second of the day. No, I want you to plan to turn your values into time. This is a critical lesson. Turn your values into time. What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So if you want to spend time playing video games or going on social media or listening to a podcast or praying or meditating, I don't care what you do with your time. Whatever it is you do with your time, I want you to do it. But I want you to do it with intent. Don't do it because of some ping, ding, or ring on your phone. Do it because that's what you plan to do with your time in advance, including, get this, planned spontaneity. That sounds like an oxymoron. How can you plan spontaneity? Here's how. On my calendar, every week, I have time with my daughter. Now, it's a big swath of time. I spend three hours on my calendar that I, I plan for spontaneity with my daughter. Why do I do that? I don't know what I'm going to do with her, right? Maybe we're going to go get some ice cream. Maybe we'll go to a museum. Maybe we'll go to the park. We're not sure what we're going to do. We're going to be spontaneous. But the reason I have to plan for it is because if I don't plan for it, it's not going to happen, right? Because I know what I know what I will not be doing for that time I have planned. I will not be on my phone. I will not be checking social media. I will not be looking at emails. I will be 100% with my daughter because it's on my calendar. That's what I said I would do in advance with intent. So you can actually plan time for that creative time. What we find is that high performers plan that time, right? When it comes, especially with creative endeavors, truly professional creatives, they don't wait for the muse to strike. No, they put their butt in the seat and they do the writing. They go to their studio and they do the painting. They do whatever it is that they said they're going to do in advance when they say they're going to do it. As opposed to low performers, they say, oh, I'm not inspired or I don't feel like it right now. And so this is the number one reason people don't accomplish their goals. They don't feel like it, right? That is the number one reason. I don't feel like exercising right now. I don't feel like working on that writing project. I don't feel like doing that hard work right now. It's a feeling, which is why the, the first step to becoming indistractable is learning how to master your internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. That's the very first step because if you don't, master these internal triggers, they become your master. What I discovered in my five years of research into this topic is that the number one source of distraction, it's not the pings and dings. That's what we tend to blame. We tend to blame the notifications and the emails and all the stuff outside of ourselves, the kids, the boss. That's only 10% of the, 
of the reason we get distracted. 10% studies have found. The other 90% of the time, 90% is not because of external triggers. It's because of these internal triggers. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is the source of 90% of our distractions. One of the biggest takeaways I had in writing this book is that time management requires pain management. Time management requires pain management. I would also add weight management requires pain management. Money management requires pain management. All human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. So in fact, distraction is driven, 90% of distraction is simply driven by this uncomfortable sensation that we seek to escape. And so that's the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering these internal triggers so they don't become our masters. So, so it sounds it like number flips. one, number one, it's down to being intentional with our time. Like, because if we aren't intentional and have a plan, like there is so much, as you said, where modern society, we need to be on an information diet. Otherwise we'd be consumed with things. And then number two is being aware that pain, like most of us are avoiding pain and these distractions are just wonderful outlets. It's almost like, like That's kind right. of in many spiritual practices, you know, life is deemed as suffering. And, you know, to many of us that can seem you know, a little too crass or a little too close to the bone. It's like, no, no, when I have chocolate, I feel great. Or when I make love with my partner, I feel wonderful too. But underneath it, there's this unease, this discomfort that many of us, and most of us, sorry, I should say, virtually all of us uh, want to kind of subside or kind of reduce. And that's the cause of distraction, ultimately. Isn't that what you're saying? Or 90% it's of It's the it. cause of all human behavior. In fact, every human behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort. Right. We used to think it's about carrots and sticks. Sigmund Freud said this. Jeremy Bentham said this. It's called the pleasure principle. Mm. It's not true that everything we do is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. But in fact, neurologically speaking, it's all about the desire to escape discomfort. Everything, everything you do, even the desire to feel good is itself psychologically destabilizing. Think about it. Wanting, craving, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts. That is exactly true. And so the way the brain gets us to act is not because something feels good. It's because of the memory of it feeling good in the past. It felt good. That's what drives us to act. It's that desire, that lusting, that itself is psychologically destabilizing. So this is called the homeostatic response. Uh, physically, it's, it's common sense. If you think about when you go outside and it's cold, well, the brain says, this is uncomfortable. You should put on a coat. If you go back inside, now you start feeling hot again. Well, your brain says, that doesn't feel good. Take off your jacket. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs. And so you eat. And if you eat too much, oh, now you feel stuffed, you stop eating. So this makes perfect common sense when, it, when we speak physiologically. Of course, the same is true psychologically. When you're feeling lonely, check social media. When you're uncertain, before you ask your brain if you know the answer, you Google it. If you are feeling bored, uh, lots of solutions to boredom, right? We've got stock prices, sports scores, the news, all kinds of things take us away from this uncomfortable sensation that we don't want to feel. So all human behaviors comes from a desire to escape discomfort, which is why distraction begins from within, that time management is truly pain management. Wow. I like so, that. So even, even even completely building this. So I'm fascinated. This is you're incredibly good and concise at giving 
golden messages because like you really are and I'm just thinking that okay so you you obviously have been looking at lots of high performers and going okay how do these people manage their time how do they become indistractable how does like how do you yourself like having researched this how do you kind of plan yourself how do you like for anyone listening how do they that kind of wants to emulate in this and wants to become a high performer what would you do or how do you set up your day or how does your time management work yeah. So let, let's start with what is distraction. It's one of these words that uh, I thought I knew. And then I, when I looked into it, I realized I didn't really understand the definition. So if you want to know if you really get what distraction is, ask yourself, what is the opposite of distraction? What is the opposite? The opposite of distraction, Traction. most people will tell you. Well, you read ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my homework. <laughs> You're giving away my punchline. <laughs> most people will say it's focus. I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But if you look at the origin of the word, the app opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. They both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that, you, uh, that move you closer to your values, that help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite is, of course, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further from your goals, further from your intentions, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important because it gets to this point of intentionality. Look, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So we need to stop vilifying, medicalizing, and moralizing these wonderful technologies. Right? There's nothing wrong with going on social media or reading the news or listening to a podcast or doing whatever you want to do with your time. It's not the technology, people. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've researched it backwards and forwards. Uh, it is not the technology. If you want to spend time on these things, do it, but do it with intent. Put it on your calendar. I have time in my calendar to go on social media. I have time in my calendar to watch Netflix. It's in my schedule. So what I've done is turned an otherwise distraction into traction by planning time for it, by having it in my schedule. So now we have traction, we have distraction. Now we have to think about those triggers, those external triggers and internal triggers. So this gives us this framework for how to live our life, how to become indistractable. Starting with the first step is mastering the internal triggers, that you need tools in your toolkit ready to go so that whenever you don't feel like doing something, which is the underlying reason why we don't accomplish our goals, it's always just a feeling, right? You will know what to do when you feel that discomfort, right? You'll say, okay, this is just another internal trigger. I got it. It's boredom. It's loneliness. It's fear. It's uncertainty. It's uh, uh, anxiety. What am I going to do about that? Am I going to try and escape it with the news, with booze, with Facebook, with football? Am I going to escape it? Or am I going to lean into it? with traction rather than distraction. So high performers, what they do, they don't have a ton of willpower, right? They don't have a lot of self-control, it turns out. What they have are tools at their disposal that they will use to lean into that discomfort. It gives them something to prove, for example. If you look at amazing athletes, if you look at uh, uh, best-selling authors, if you look at uh, you know, super productive artists of all sorts, they're using that discomfort, right? You'll hear these stories of, of opposition, of adversity, where they have something to prove. Whereas people who are low performers try and escape that discomfort. As soon as something is hard, as soon as it's not comfortable, as soon as it doesn't make me happy, as soon as I don't wanna, they escape it as opposed to leaning into it. So that's the first step. 
master the internal triggers. The second step, I'll just run through all four. So, so it's almost like, so it's almost like, so it's almost like leaning into like the step number one is like leaning into the pain, like being aware that, okay, pain is there. Pain all is these a part other of life. It's central. <clears throat> yeah. It's fundamental of part of the human experience. Yeah. But if you've got a mission which you're on, you know, you're going to lean into it. Right. So, so there's many different techniques. There's, there's over a dozen different techniques I talk about in the book, Indistractable, and there's no one method, right? Sometimes the right answer is mindfulness and meditation. I'm not the biggest fan on those. They're, they're not bad. If you meditate and you're mindful, it's wonderful. It works for you. I think recently we've had a little bit of the pendulum swinging too far and people kind of believing, well, you can meditate your problems away. Sometimes you need to stop meditating, get up off the couch or off the cushion and go fix the problem, <laughs> right? If you can fix the source of the discomfort, whether that's a crappy workplace environment, whether it's family trouble, whether it's internal uh, issues that you need to deal with, see if you can fix them. But if you can't fix that discomfort, then we need other tools, right? All of us, no matter how much psychotherapy we've had, we all have this ennui of being human beings, right? There's always that discomfort. There's always these core human emotions. How we deal with them, those emotions is critical. Amazing. Jeez, it's so, you're, you're brilliant. I love like, your message. One, one bit that's quite like the stoic principle of kind of the importance of discomfort, like modern day existence is, you know, we're kind of in a blanket of comfort and we're all you know right. often where we mistake happiness for comfort as opposed to you know the very nature of the human experience is discomfort and it's true leaning into this comfort that we kind of find a deeper more integral part of ourselves and it's almost so congruent with what you're saying the sense of if we lean into that that's where we'll find more essence of who we are and inspiration how right you are. And in fact, I would say that the, the, the self-help industry has really done people a disservice by promoting happiness as the goal, that it's a completely unrealistic, unnatural goal to be continuously happy. Think about it, right? If there was ever a group of homo sapiens who were happy all the time, who were contented, uh, who had everything they needed and never wanted for anything, our ancestors would have killed and eaten them. <laughs> right? That makes no sense. You don't want to, from an evolutionary basis, have a species that's content. You want a species to always want more, to strive, to create, to invent. This is what got us to the moon. This is what gets us to create world-changing medicine, to overturn despots. It's the fact that we are unsatisfied. That's a good thing. So high performers leverage that discomfort. They do something with it. They use it like rocket fuel to propel them towards traction. Low performers. They don't know what to do with that, that, that burning uh, a discomfort and they escape it with distraction. Wow. Um, I like that. Yeah, it really is. It really kind of. Okay. Okay. So, so you said there was about 12 things. I don't know if we're going to go through a couple of them. You said like this internal triggers, there's obviously ex external triggers like bings and dings and dongs and whatever that like emails or text messages or whatever kind of notifications there might be. Um, but like, like what you're saying is it, it really comes back to being intentional and being aware that pain and discomfort is a natural evolutionary principle and get used to it. Otherwise, like, and even back to like, as you're saying, it's not the technology. Me and Stephen were discussing earlier when we were going for a walk. It was like, well, I remember studying for our end of year school exams. Like back, this is way before there was iPhones or email. Or maybe there was email, but like we just spend the day tidying our rooms and organizing our drawers. And oh, I got to clean my room again. And I better empty the bin and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's like, as you say, it's not necessarily the technology. It's more the discomfort. You're trying to avoid discomfort. 
That's exactly right. Which is why, you know, many of the solutions out there like digital detoxes and digital minimalism or whatever, like when you try it, you realize it's not the digital part. <laughs> That's not the problem. You will always find distraction. You know why? Because people have always found a way to distract themselves. You know, every generation freaks out about how, you know, in my generation, it was, oh, we were all couch potatoes. And before that, it was the radio. And before that, it was uh, the bicycle. And before that, it was the written word. You know, Aristotle talked about, or maybe uh, Socrates, sorry, it was Socrates. The written word, what a terrible technology. It's going to enfeeble men's minds. We always flip out about the latest technology, you know, causing us to do things we don't want to do because it's a very convenient excuse, right? Mm. If I'm addicted to something, if it's hijacking my brain, well, it's not my fault, right? Zuckerberg is doing it to me. It but is. when we call it boo. what it really is, right? What's that? No, I was just going to say, boo, it's Stephanie Zuckerberg. It's Stephanie Mark. It's yeah. his problem. No, no. Like, it's, it's his fault, right? That's what yeah, yeah, yeah. And let yeah. me tell you, so I want to tell you very clearly, this stuff is not your fault distraction is not your fault. You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent the nightly news. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility because who the hell is going to do something about it for you? Is the news media going to tell you, hey, you've read enough news. Go have a life. Are they going to tell you that? Of course not. <laughs> is Netflix going to say, you've watched enough shows. Please go, go, go do something with yourself. No, they're not. That, that's not the point of these products. We want these products. That's what makes them good. We want them to entertain us. So we can't expect the products to fix this for us. We can't expect the genius politicians to figure it out for us. If you hold your breath, you're going to suffocate. We can do something about it. It's actually not that hard. So step number one is mastering the internal triggers. That's the most important step. Having these tools to say, okay, why am I, why am I going away from what I said I was going to do? Why am I getting distracted? What's that feeling I'm trying to escape? And then I, I give you some, some very practical tools that anyone can use. The second big strategy to becoming indistractable is making time for traction. This goes back to that scheduling that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. As I mentioned, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have a big open calendar in your day, what did you get distracted from? You didn't say what you were going to do with your time, so you can't say you got distracted. You have to plan ahead how you want to spend your time. And again, I'm not here to tell you how you spend your time. You can play video games all day if that's what you want to do with your time and your attention. That's great, as long as it's done in, with intent. So this is where we have to ask ourselves, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And so I help people subdivide their life into these three life domains of you, right? If you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of others, you can't make the world better. How would the person you want to become spend time taking care of themselves? Do you want time to read? Do you want time to exercise? Do you have a bedtime, right? How many of us tell our kids, we're all parents here, how many of us have bedtimes for our kids? So you have to get to bed, it's very important, you need a bedtime. But do we have a bedtime? <laughs> we all know how important sleep is. Is it on your schedule? Very, very important. Second life domain is your relationships. You know, We know that the industrialized world is suffering from a loneliness epidemic right now. And loneliness is as detrimental to your health as smoking and obesity, studies find. Fifth, so we 15, have got 15 to cigarettes. Time. 15 cigarettes, I think it is yeah. today, isn't it? So it's huge. It's, it's a real problem. And part of the reason this is happening is that the, the regular social bonds we had with our friends, and this, this is partially because the world became more secular, is that we don't have the church group. We don't have the, the regular Friday synagogue. We don't have those, those uh, uh, regular interactions with the people in our community that we need to, to stay happy and healthy. We've got to bring that time back. It has to be on our schedules. Don't just give your family and friends scraps of leftover put it on your schedule. And then your work domain. So work can be divided into two, two uh, kinds of work. 
Low performers tend to spend their entire day doing what's called reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings. And they spend almost no time in reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Strategizing, planning, creative work, thinking, for God's sakes, requires us to do so without distraction. So high performers put at least some time in their day for that reflective work, and they keep it sacred. They protect it because it's incredibly important. If you don't do it, you're going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So that's step number two is making time for traction. Step number three is hacking back the external triggers. This is where we talk about all the pings, dings, and rings, as well as all the other things that we don't consider like your kids, right? Your kids can be a huge distraction. We love them to death, but they can be very distracting, especially if many of us are working from home. So what do we do about that? And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. This is where we put in a firewall against distraction, the last line of defense to make sure that uh, we, we don't go off track. So it's really those four big strategies. The nice one. It's kind of almost like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy and needs like self-actualization was the, the, the point of the pyramid. And it's kind of like, like what you're suggesting is kind of to take ultimate responsibility for your life and be live with intentionality and just kind of almost like defining where you want to go and then scheduling and working the journey to that. Because we used to play a lot of golf when we were kids. And I remember you'd stand up in the tee box and you just I'm trying to hit the fairway and you'd hit down the fairway and you might hit it, you might miss it. And then as we started playing more, it was like, don't aim down the fairway, aim for a specific tree down the fairway. And the more specific mm. we were, the more likelihood we were going to hit the, the uh, fairway. And similarly, I think that with life, the more specific we can be and the more knowledgeable of where we want to go, the easier it is to get there. And I think that's part of the problem is that many people listening may not necessarily know where they want to get to. And that any kind of, thoughts on that or the sense of finding your passion or that that type aspect of it 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 seems like a lot to do to become indistractable it's actually something anyone can do and to be very clear becoming indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted i I still get distracted from time to time and i I wrote the darn book (laughs) it took me five years of research to write it and i still get distracted because being indistractable you know i made up the the term i can define it any way i want it doesn't mean you never get distracted it means you understand why you got distracted so that you can do something about it. So an indis- a, a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same things again and again and again. You know, Puello Coelho, he had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So distractible people keep getting distracted by the same things and don't do anything about it. How many times can we complain about Facebook or the news or whatever distracting us before we say enough? (laughs) An indistractable person says, okay, you got me once. Now I know why. Because every distraction only has one of three potential causes, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. And so there is no distraction we can't overcome as long as we plan ahead. Indistractable people take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. So internal trigger, that's obviously discomfort. External. And just, just, to, just even to riff off that, that could be, oh, I feel like a chocolate donut or I feel like um, I don't feel well or I don't feel like doing this horrible work thing that I'm that's meant to do. That's discomfort. That's, that's the internal that's trigger. The internal yeah. trigger. Planning issues, I didn't schedule it. So I don't know what I'm actually trying to achieve or where, where I'm trying to go. It's just big open space. So it's all just kind of loose uh, and then the external triggers is that something kind of interfering with no, your the plan? second one was making traction for what you want knowing what you want and i think that comes back to planning, and like planning yeah planning but i think it goes higher than that and maybe that's what you get into in the book where you're talking about what how do you want your life to li- to be what's important to you 
And how do you schedule your time according to that? So you're not just scheduling work time, you're actually scheduling time to spend with your, the things which you want to do. And maybe it could be watching Netflix, but it could be the same time spending time with your children or spending time with your parents or walking your dog or whatever it is, but it's actually prioritizing those things. That's right. Yep, you got it. So it's it's those three things, the internal triggers, the planning problems, or the external triggers. And 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 all of them, it turns out, we can do something about. Now, there, you know, the, the, the people like to focus on the exception rather than the rule. There is the 1%, you know, oh my gosh, it came out of nowhere type event. But in the people's uh, uh, desire to find a reason why this won't work for them, that's what they focus on. Well, what if somebody needs me and it's an emergency and my house is burning down? How will I know? <laughs> right? They focus on the once in a lifetime type experience uh, that really you can't predict. Okay, and those things happen from time to time. If it's an actual crisis, a crisis by definition is something you have to respond to right now or something terrible is gonna happen that you can't predict, okay, that's that's one in a million. But the vast majority of our, of our day-to-day lives, it's distraction is only uh, caused by one of these three things. Mm. Wow, very cool. And in terms of, so, so back, I'm, I'm liking this planning thing and I kind of got in terms of time management, do you plan your weekends as well or Monday? Like, you know, most people work Monday to Friday or some form of work in it. And then the weekends, do you plan, like, are you, do you ha- structure it out and do you encourage other people to structure it or? I, I do now. So now that I've been doing it for so long, uh, I actually do plan that time because it's very important to me that I have that time with my wife. So for example, on the weekends, my wife and I take a, a four hour walk in the morning together. Uh, that's on my schedule because, uh, you know, we've, we've been married now for over 20 years and we used to have these arguments about like, Hey, when are we going to spend time together? And it became such a pain to organize. Well, you know, when, when can we find time? And maybe we'll have a date night once in a while. And it was so special. And this is my life partner, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's a funny story. We, so we met in college in an economics class and we learned in an economics class about what's called the residual benefactor. The residual benefactor is someone who, or sorry, beneficiary, residual beneficiary is the chump that gets whatever's left over when a company goes out of business, right? So the first debt holders get whatever, you know, whatever money's there, then equity, then the residual beneficiary, whatever's left over, that's what they get. And I remember a few years into our marriage, my wife turned to me and said, you know, Nir, you have turned me into the residual beneficiary. And I get whatever's left over scraps of time uh, after your work and after your friends and after the TV and after all the other stuff, then you make, you know, you give me the scraps of time. And she was absolutely right. And so we don't do that anymore. Uh, Now we have time in our schedule. uh, And we also do this process, which was life-changing called schedule syncing. So uh, for years, we had this argument around why I wasn't pulling my weight in the household, right? That my wife would say, you know, Nia, don't you see our daughter needs to be fed? Or don't you see that the garbage needs to be taken out? Why aren't you doing this stuff? And I would say, honey, 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 listen, I'm happy to do it. Just tell me what needs to happen. I'll do it. Just tell me if you need me to take it out, or, you know, take out the trash or whatever it was. And I was thinking that I was so kind of me, right? How nice to, 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 to get, you tell her I'll do anything that needs to be done. And what I didn't realize that I was giving her yet another job. Now she was my babysitter, right? <laughs> now she had to tell me what to do. And so we would have these arguments until we started schedule syncing. What is a schedule sync? You sit down, we do this every Sunday night, we sit down on Sunday nights and we look at each other's time box calendars, right? The, when you make a time box calendar, as opposed to, by the way, a to-do list, which we can talk about why to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. Now we sit down with our time box calendars and we know exactly who's gonna do what, right? It takes us 15 minutes a week, 15 minutes. 
So, okay, you need to drive our daughter here. And on Wednesday, we're going to do dinner. And then we, we'd look over that counter 15 minutes. We never have those arguments anymore because one of my values is to be in an equitable marriage. And this, the research shows even in 2022, even when both, uh, both people work outside the home, women take on a disproportionate share of household admin duties, right? This will be no surprise to pretty much all the married women listening to me right now. They all know what I'm talking about. And it's up to us guys to step up and do this schedule sync to, uh, to, to understand what our responsibilities are and put them in the calendar. That way there's no disagreements. Now, this same technique is incredibly helpful in the workplace. Part of the reason that people feel so burned out at work is that there's very little transparency between employees and employers around how people are spending their time. So this technique of, of what I call schedule syncing is a life-changing practice to do with your boss. If you can sit down with your boss once a week, say Monday morning, hey boss, can, can, I spare, can you spare me 15 minutes? You show them your time box calendar and then you say, hey, boss, look, this, this is my week ahead. Here's how I'm going to spend the time working for you. Here's, you know, see, here's time for email. Here's time for this meeting. Here's time for this project. Here it is on my calendar. Here's how I'm going to spend my time this week. Now you see this other piece of paper. Here's the list of things that I wrote down that you asked me to do that I'm having trouble putting in the schedule. I'm having trouble finding the, how we should prioritize. Can you help me with that prioritization? And you will find that your boss will worship the ground you walk on. Because let, let me tell you, I've started three companies. Every boss out there is wondering what the heck their employees are doing all day. They all want to know, but they don't want to ask because they don't want to micromanage you. So what you need to do is to manage up by showing your boss what you plan to do for the week, right? When you show them, here's how I'm planning ahead, and you ask them to help you reprioritize, they're always going to say, oh, you know what? That meeting, that's actually not really necessary. But that thing that you put on the piece of paper really should be in your calendar. Can you swap that out? That process of schedule syncing is a, is a game changer, hugely helpful. I'm loving this, Neil. This is really good. This is well, class. Can, this no, is brilliant. Can I, can, can I go next? Okay. Uh, well, I, I really want to go as well, but you go. Okay. okay. So, Nir, okay, two things. We've got plenty of time, guys. No rush. Okay, <laughs> okay great. Brilliant. For, for anyone listening there is going, I'm not into planning. I struggle with planning. I'm like my wife, for example, she's like, she loves being fluid and being in the moment. And she's often hard to pin down you know, to pin down, and I don't mean physically pin down, I just mean to kind of agree like a time and a, make, make an arrangement and that type of thing. For anyone listening, how would you encourage them to the benefits of planning? And then the second part of that was just, you said that you don't believe in checklists, which makes me go, what? Yeah, this checklist that. part of a plan. It's like, how do they? Well, well, I was, wonder if you could talk to those, please. To-do li to -do list versus calendars, sure. time box calendars, whatever a time box calendar is. I don't really know that one. Yeah, so the, to the first point, um, one of the chapters in the book is about reimagining your temperament. Um, this is a tough topic because people, people take it kind of personally because what we tend to do is to label ourselves by the roles we play. I'm a father. I'm um, a Sagittarius. I'm a morning person. I'm a this, I'm a that. It's not who you are. That is a role you are playing. It's not who you are. You can change those things if you wanted to. You can define yourself any way you want, right? It's up to you. So what happens is when people say to themselves, oh, I'm not a morning person or I'm bad at scheduling or I can't, you know, I'm the kind of person who can't make plans. Well, who says? You say. 
So we need to free ourselves of these labels that don't serve us and only adopt the labels that do serve us. If it does make you a better person, I talk about this in the book as well, how we can use our identity to make us better people. Some of us find that when we call ourselves proud fathers, it makes us better, right? We know that from the psychology of religion, that when people claim to be a certain religion, it makes them more likely to adhere to what the religion says to do. Uh, even a vegetarian, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich for breakfast. No, it is who they are. It is their identity. They are a vegetarian. Vegetarians don't eat meat. So it, it makes adhering to becoming that kind of person much easier, which is why the book is titled Indistractable. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. It is your new identity. If you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, you can proudly declare that you are indistractable. You are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. Now, it doesn't mean we're always perfect, but an indistractable person doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to strive to be as honest with yourself as you are with others. So the first piece of advice is that we all have to individually, you can't make someone do this, but individually, we need to release ourselves from these labels that don't serve us and instead adopt the labels and the identities that do serve us. Now, you can't do that for your wife. Hand her the book, have her read at least that chapter on reimagining your temperament and, and let me do the convincing. I don't know. I don't think you're going to be able to do that for her. So that's no, the first no, point. Here, here. We have to relieve, relieve ourselves of these, of, these, uh, of these labels, especially the ones around, oh, I'm no good at time management or you know, this is just who I am. A lot of people take comfort in that identity because it, 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 it's easy. Right? <laughs> I don't have to change because that's who I am. It's impossible. That's how I was born. Well, usually not. <laughs> of course, there are some, some preconditions. It's a very small percentage of the population that actually has you know, ADHD or OCD or addictive disorders. Uh, but that, that, those are, you know, th 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 kind of out of scope for our discussion. That, well, the book wasn't written for, for folks who are uh, suffering from you know, a clinical disorder. Um, and then in terms of the, the, the second question, remind me, what was the second part of the question? To-do list, like, to -do you, list. I love a to-do list. I love writing okay. a to-do list. I love ticking it off. I love the pleasure of it. I okay. love a list. And just you let's, said- Okay, quite, let's talk about to-do Yes. So it's not that writing things down on a piece of paper is a bad idea. That's a very good idea. Getting stuff out of your brain and putting into an app or putting it on a piece of paper, great idea. It's running your life on a to-do list. That's a problem. If you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, oh, what am I going to do with my time today? And you look at your to-do list rather than your schedule, you've shot yourself in the foot. Big mistake. Why? There's a few reasons. Number one, to-do lists have no constraints. You can always add more to a to-do list. It can be a mile long, right? And so what happens when we have a mile long to-do list is that we work real hard all day. We're trying to check these boxes off, which by the way, another big problem with the to-do list is that what do people do when they have a to-do list? Do they do the hard and important work? No, they do the easy and urgent stuff because it feels so good to check those boxes, right? So we don't prioritize properly because of a to-do list. That's point number one. Point number two is when we have a to-do list that has no constraints, what happens when we come home at the end of the day and we haven't checked all those things we promised ourselves we were going to do. We didn't check all those boxes. We're well, missing day after day, week after week, month after month. If you see that day in and day out, that begins to take a toll on your psyche. You said you were going to do all this stuff and you didn't. Loser. Which is why people start believing over time that they're somehow broken. Well, there's nothing broken with you. It's that you're using a broken technique. All right. The third reason that to-do lists are so bad for you or I should say running your life on a to-do list is so bad for you, is because very few people who use to-do lists to measure their productivity have actually felt what leisure 
actually feels like. I didn't. I used to be a, a to-do list devotee, and I was constantly ruled by the tyranny of the to-do list, meaning I, I would want to do something fun, right? I want to be with my daughter. I want to come home from work, and I want to play a, a board game or uh, watch Netflix or do something I want to do. But in the back of my mind is that to-do list and all the things that I should be doing right now. And so even when I want to have fun, I'm constantly thinking like that, that I'm avoiding work. That's terrible because you never actually get to relax. Whereas a person who use a uses a time-boxed calendar, right, as, as opposed to just checking off cute little boxes, the person who measures themselves, not by how many boxes they ticked off, but on this metric, which is, did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? That's the only thing you need to measure yourself by. Let me say that again. Did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? No matter what that task is, notice I didn't say finish. Okay, I didn't say finish. Because it turns out that what the fourth big problem with to-do lists is that there's no feedback mechanism. And this is why people are so bad at predicting how long things will take them. Studies find that on average, people think a task will take them only a third as long as it actually does. It tends to take people three times longer to finish a task than they estimate. Why? Because you don't know how long something takes you. Here's what happens with a to-do list. There's a big task that someone needs to do. They work on it for five minutes. It's hard. Then they check email because you know they want a little break. And then after 20 minutes of email, they'll get back to the project, maybe another few minutes, they'll work on it. And then it's hard again. They don't know how to manage those internal triggers and they get distracted again. And there's no way to track how long the thing took you as opposed to an indistractable person says, okay, I'm going to work on this task for 30 minutes. And it doesn't matter if I finish, I'm just going to work on it without distraction. That person can now begin to understand how long the task is taking them. They say, okay, I worked on it for 30 minutes and here's how much progress I made. I got about 10% through the task. Great. Well, that means I need to put in 10 more 30 minute blocks and I'll finish it. A to-do list can't do that for you. So time box calendars and the people who simply measure themselves by, did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? The kicker is those people, even though they're not tracking whether they finished, it's not about the checking of a finished task by simply tracking whether they worked on a task without distraction, they actually finish more. They get more done than the to-do list devotees. Wow. So that's, so for, that's, for me, that's brilliant. So, so for me, just, just so I'm really, you know, relaying that I've, 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 I understand what you're saying. So for me, who loves writing a checklist, it's prioritizing the, the checklist and then scheduling it. And then based on the feedback loop, it's rescheduling if I didn't manage to get done what I said I would do. That's right. That's right. So again, nothing wrong with put, t taking it out of your brain and putting it on a piece of paper and an app. Great idea. But you're not done. You have to also put it on your schedule. And sometimes, you know, if you have a bunch of little small tasks, admin stuff, that's, that's great. I have that in my schedule. I have weekly time for admin duties. I have two hours where it's a bunch of like little, you know, 15 minute tasks. Fine. I batch all those little things I got to do in that time period. But if you're not taking that extra step of putting it on your calendar, you don't get all the benefits that we just talked about that, that make it way better than using a to-do list. Do you have stuff in the book or on your website about this to-do lists and scheduling? Because I'm, I'm, I really want to learn this. Like I really do because I'm such a to-do list junkie. 
Absolutely. Well, well, I'll give you some links for the show notes. I've, I've written a bunch of articles about, you know, what do we do if we have uh, various excuses that we, I've, I've, I've heard every excuse there is about why it won't work and why, ah, I don't know, I need to be spontaneous and my boss, my kids, I've heard them all. There's, there's a way to overcome every single one of those objections. I've, I've, I've heard everyone. Yeah, okay, and it really is like the resistance. Me and Steve tend to be those. We've previously been those people that are like fluid and kind of, oh, spontaneous kind of. And now we've recently been trying to hammer ourselves into a time box calendar. And we tend to try to avoid, you know, like this, this, those internal triggers that it's a bit like, as I said, studying as a kid in your school, at your desk in your bedroom when you really didn't want to do it. And just trying to avoid these little time boxes because it's like, oh, no, I just want to do something. Let's go for a walk or whatever it might be. Yeah. So, so that gets back to the feeling, what, what you're expressing right there. And, and that's why you have to do these four techniques in, in concert. Uh, if you just do the time boxing, that's the step number two. If you do step number two before step number one, you'll have the situation you just talked about where, okay, it's on my calendar, but I don't feel like doing it. <laughs> you have to know what to do with the feeling before you put it on your calendar. That's actually more important. So, it's so that's like the internal meaning, trigger. It's back to the exactly. internal discomfort. Yeah, yeah. Two, and that's- two- Two things that come up for so many people in the workplace is email and meetings. And, you know, I, I've gone through years where I've had a huge resistance for meetings where there was more than three people and they went on longer than 10, 15 minutes. But I do appreciate the importance of coordinating around a common goal, the very nature of a business. And I just wonder if you could talk to talk to us and to anyone listening about how to be more productive in terms of email and in terms of meetings, because emails we tend to approach them from the reactive point. I got an email and you check it every 20 minutes as opposed to, I'm guessing the way you approach email is you schedule it, you check it two times or once a day and that's it. Yeah, so, okay, so let's, which one do you want to do first? Meetings or email? We, we, email, let's go with email. Book, but I can give it email. Okay, so email is uh, the bane of the modern knowledge worker's existence. Uh, and where we find people waste time in email studies find is not, the uh, the replying it's not it's not the part people think they waste time on it's not just the sheer quantity of email where we waste time on email and people waste a lot of time on email the, there was a Harvard Business Review study that found that 25 percent of the time that the knowledge worker the average knowledge worker spends on email uh, they spend sending messages that didn't need to be sent and 25 percent of the emails that they received they did not need to receive so huge waste of time so what do we do about it the first thing is that we have to set a rule that each email we only touch two times, okay? Because where studies find we waste time is in the rechecking of email. That's a big fat waste of time. What does this look like? You get the email, you open it, you read it real quick, you put it away, you check the next email, five minutes later, oh wait, what did that email say again? Let me open it again. Oh, I don't really feel like replying right now. Maybe later on the day, you open it again and you check and check and recheck these emails. That's where studies find we may waste the most time. So here's what we do. Every email you only touch twice or less. The first time you open it, the only question you need to ask yourself is not the subject matter. The only question is, when does this need a reply? Okay. When does this need a reply? That's what the first time you open it. It can be never, in which case delete it or archive it right away. All the other emails are going to fall into one of two categories. Either it's something that needs to reply to right T- today, right? But, well, there's a, there's a third category of, oh my gosh, this is super, super urgent. That's, you know, one in every thousand emails you have to write back right away. Happens sometimes, you know, one in a thousand. The vast majority of emails fall into two categories. Number one is something that needs to reply to today. That's about 20% of your emails on average. The other 80% are emails that can be replied to sometime this week. So what I want you to do 
for those emails. And by the way, I don't agree with that David Allen's advice of anything that takes you less than two minutes, just do. I don't agree with that because email, as you know, if each email takes you less than two minutes, you'll be doing email for hours and hours. So that's, I think that's bad advice. You open the email and then you label it. And if you don't know how to label your email, every email service provider will do that. You can Google it. You label the email with those two, one of two tags, today or this week. Then you have time in your time box calendar to only reply to those emails that need a reply today. Okay, only the 20% about of those emails that need a reply today. And you have that time in your calendar. So what about the other 80%? Okay, how am I gonna reduce the time I spend on email if I, I still gotta reply to them at some point, right? Where's the time saving? Here's where the magic happens. When we reply to emails based on when they need a reply, as opposed to when they come in, that's what most people do. They start at the top of their inbox and they work their way down. But we don't think about the urgency of each email, how urgent it actually is. 80% of your emails don't need a reply today, but people take comfort in saying, well, what do I do right now, right? That internal trigger of, I'm not really sure what I want to need to do right now. I don't really feel like working on the big project. Let me just answer some emails because that feels productive. But the email doesn't need a reply today. So why are we wasting our time? In this email ping pong game, right? You, if, you serve it and it comes back. You serve it and it comes back. If you want to get less emails in a given period of time, you have to send fewer emails in a given period of time. So when we slow down that conversation for those emails, the 80% of emails that do not need a reply today, you are reducing the net number of emails going back and forth. If you just let them pause a little bit, and here's, here's really where the magic happens. Studies find that about 50% of that 80% of emails, if you just give them a few days, if you say, okay, I'm going to reply to it sometime this week. For me, it's message Mondays. I have three hours in my schedule every Monday when I flush through all those emails that I can wait to have a reply sometime this week. And what you will find is that half of those emails, half, don't need a reply at all. Why? Because there's this beautiful magic trick that happens when you let emails simmer. People figure out their own crap right? They, what was a priority on, on uh, Thursday is not so important on Monday anymore, right? It can wait a little time, but it got crushed under the weight of some other priority. And so if you just let those non-urgent emails wait just a few days, you avoid the email ping pong and you find that most of the time or about half the time, many of those emails didn't even need a reply to begin with. It makes a lot of sense. It's like as a parent, you hear your, I have three kids, so regularly they're, you know, they're having a go at each other. And if I can just manage to sit with that discomfort of wanting to go in and who did what? And just actually let them, they sort themselves yes. most times. So I think what you're saying really resonates with me. Yeah. And you're actually, you know, if you, if you have employees, by the way, what you're doing, if you're constantly replying, if you're always available, you're essentially training people to offload thinking to you. Right? Why would I have to think for myself if you'll do the thinking for me? And so by constantly answering people's questions that they could answer themselves, you're training them to keep doing it. So if it's actually urgent that 20% of emails that do need to reply today, okay, sure. And have that time on your calendar. What you don't want to do and what most people do with email, it becomes what we do when we don't know what else to do. And that's a huge mistake because people use email as the excuse saying, oh, it's productive. It's, it's, it's worky right? It's a work-related task. But if it's not what you said you were going to do with your time, it is just as much of a distraction as playing a video game. So it's really about every email that comes in, you label it either for today or for this week. The ones that are for this week, you actually schedule time for it. And by the time, if, it, if you've let it sit for a couple of days, half of them will solve themselves. And the other half of them, you know, you just bounce back, you hit the ball back to them and it carries on. 
Right. So, and, and you're going to make that time for the email that you reply to today as well. What you don't want to do is reply to it whenever you feel like it. You're replying to it because that's what's on your calendar. And by the way, if you say, oh, but I need to be responsive, no problem. Put an email checking time every hour on the hour for 15 minutes. Fine. But decide when you're going. Now, most people don't need that, right? Most people, if you put an hour of email time and you have it on your calendar, you're not stressed thinking, oh, when am I going to get to my email? I know when I'm going to get to email. It's on my calendar. I have an appointment with myself to check only those, ur- to reply to only those urgent messages of the day. And how often do you check your email? I check my email twice a day. Oh, twice a day. And are they scheduled times or are they kind of like when you feel like yeah. it just as a little treat? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's very much scheduled. It has to be scheduled. If I don't, then I'll be doing email all day long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Wow. Gee, it, so it really is a schedule. Like, you know, the crux of time management is being very intentional with your time and scheduling a lot of it. Otherwise, we'll just be spinning, you know, spinning around really. We'll be victims to our, our urges, to our feelings. And uh, that's, that's terrible, right? Because the worst kind of distraction is not the obvious stuff, right? It's pretty obvious if you're playing Candy Crush in the middle of the day that uh, if you, you, you should be working instead, right? That's obvious. The worst kind of distraction is the kind of distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your career and your life forward. So the worst thing is when you feel like, oh, I'm being productive. I'm checking email. Look at me. I'm so productive. But really, you're only making more work for yourself and your colleagues. And most importantly, you're not working on the big hard stuff that you're procrastinating on, that you're procrastinating on because you think you're being productive checking email. That's the real danger of, of distraction. The, the kind of distraction you don't even realize is happening. You are really good, Nir. You're really good. Then the final one, if we have time for just about meetings, because meetings is something meetings. that okay. both yeah. me and Dave are, are often have quite, can have quite a resistance to. Yes. Okay. Meetings. meetings. Let's, let's do meetings. This is a good one because it doesn't, it's not a technology, right? But I think technology has made things worse because it used to be uh, that if we were going to call a meeting, uh, we had to be physically present, uh, you know, in, in, in a particular time in a particular place. Today with Zoom, it's, it's, a, it's a miraculous technology. It's wonderful that we have it, but the, the barriers to calling a meeting have, have gone down. It's so easy to call a meeting. It doesn't matter where you are, what time we can always find, you know, we, can, we can book a meeting and, and we can talk about something. The problem is that many times people are calling these meetings, especially when it comes to you know, the highest paid person uh, calling meetings, they're doing it because of internal triggers of their own. They're doing it because of a sense of a need for control, a sense for agency, a, 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 a laziness of not wanting to think for themselves. Let, let's just talk this out together. And so that's toxic, that if we are all on a call, taking a meeting, uh, and we've all been on these calls, we probably are on a call like this almost every day, it's, it's incredibly distracting from the real work that we have to do, the actual thinking, the strategizing, the, the, the creative work. We need to do that on our own, not in a meeting. So what do we do about that? We bring back the friction of calling a meeting. How do we do that? We do that in a few different ways. One, let's understand what is a meeting for? Okay, what is a meeting for? We're not talking about a social engagement. Social engagement, that, that's, that's out of scope here. Social engagement is to meet with people and have fun with them. We're not talking about business meetings. For a business meeting, there's only one reason to call a business meeting. Not to brainstorm, okay? This is a huge mistake. Many people say, oh, let's, let's have a brainstorming session. Well, we know that brainstorming in large groups is a terrible idea, that brainstorming should be done by yourself, maximum with one other person. Because when we do group brainstorming, what tends to happen is that the loudest, most 
male and highest paid person dominates the conversation. Okay, brainstorming should not be done in groups of, of more than two people. What you should do if you want to brainstorm is give people a prompt, ask them to book 30 minutes, an hour on their calendar to think about this question, and then send the stakeholder their thoughts. That's the proper way to brainstorm. Do not brainstorm in meetings. The purpose of a meeting is one thing, to gain consensus, to gain consensus. That's the only purpose of a meeting. To gain consensus, what do we need? Want number one, we need an agenda. Okay. This is something we learned in high school student council. Almost all meetings, something like 90% of the meetings these days, don't have an agenda. No agenda, no freaking meeting. If you don't circulate an agenda, it is not worth people. If you haven't taken the time to, to write down a freaking agenda, then there's no meeting. Okay. That's number one. Number two, you have to go even a step further. And this is a technique I learned from Amazon. I didn't invent this. This is called sending out a briefing document. At Amazon, whenever they have a meeting, the first 15, sometimes 30 minutes of that meeting, they spend reviewing a briefing document. The briefing document is what the person who called the meeting wants to tell everybody the information people in the meeting need to have in order to make a decision around this consensus that we're trying to build. So the stakeholder needs to do their damn homework, come with a suggestion to the meeting what they think the group should do. The point of the meeting is to get the brain trust to give their, their opinion about this recommendation so that we can move forward with a consensus. Consensus means- but in like, order to call that meeting, what's that? I was just going to say, consent, by consensus, you mean it's like literally to make a decision and everyone to get aligned in the exactly. same direction. Yeah. Exactly. That is the best way to call a meeting is that it put in the reason people call these superfluous, stupid meetings that feel like a huge waste of time is that they do all their thinking in the meeting. They say, oh, yeah, but I, I'm a verbal learner and I need to talk it out. <sighs> Give me a break. You're a, you're a grown person. You can do that on your own time. Right. And of course, if these meetings, how many meetings do we think, oh, my God, that totally could have become an email. <laughs> we don't need to sit in a room to hear someone, you know, giving us information anymore. Send a freaking email. Uh, that's not gaining consensus. Sharing information should not be done in a meeting. Sharing information happens asynchronously in an email. Gaining consensus is something that we can we can only do synchronously. That's the only reason we should call a meeting. Jeez, there like, you're brilliant. Like this is stuff that everyone should know. It's kind of, you know, we've been in business 17, 18 years and, you know, I've read lots of things about meetings and maybe I'm just more receptive to it in this moment. But it really, what you've said is, you know, very... Gritty, it's brilliant. brilliant. Really it is practical, <laughs> pragmatic, you know. Uh, but it's it's the hard work. I've, been to, I've learned the hard way. I've I've I'm embarrassed to say I've been a part of and and led so many pointless meetings. Uh, you know, I, I was a consultant at Boston Consulting Group. I went to Stanford Graduate School of Business. I taught at Stanford. I started three companies. The, the and then I, and then I said, well, am I doing any of this right? So that's where I went to the actual research, right? I, I don't like to spout off ideas that I just invented. All this stuff comes from there's over thirty pages of citations to peer-reviewed studies in the back of my book. So there's, there's a lot of research around what I'm saying. But I, I, you know, so many of these things we just keep doing them because that's the way we've we've always done them, and we don't stop to think, wait a minute, is this the best way to do it? <laughs> and so good good thing to know that there are there is a, a lot of research out there that that shows that there there is a better way to do things. And the kind of the main point which I'm getting here is it's about slowing down, being more intentional, 
planning and being organized and being more structured instead of like myself and Stephen have this, which we'll say often to ourselves, like it's ready, fire, aim. You know, we'll be, we'll have fire, you know, instead of ready, aim, fire, like it's, it's a matter of slowing down, you know, wisdom and age and maturity maybe is, gives one experience where they can go, okay, well, I need to slow down and be more organized and do things properly as opposed to just rushing and being um, less effective. Yeah, and, and I think part of it is that it's hard work to think. Mm. You know, the reason I write, the reason I have a career as an author is that I discovered, uh, what now, about 12 years ago, that the best way to think is to write to, for me. But it's hard. It's really hard. Because when you try and write something out, and this is why those briefing documents in a meeting are, are, are so helpful, when you try and write something out logically, you, you, you uncover your own bullshit, right? You, 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 can, you can talk a good game to somebody, but when you write it out and say point A, point B, point C, it's very hard to, to fool somebody uh, that way. Like you'll, you'll uncover your own mistakes. The problem is it's hard. <laughs> it requires time. It's so much easier to say, hey, let's get to some, you know, let's get some beers and we'll talk about it. The problem is you, you just can't get very far. And so it takes you orders of magnitude more time to do it that way versus sitting down and actually thinking for a few minutes. And most people uh, don't want to make that time. We can, we can, but we don't. Near wow. your brilliance. Yes, preparation, 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 I think is, is a huge thing that- And the least... tolerance of the discomfort, right? The tolerance of the discomfort of sitting down and saying, let me think about this for a bit. Let me have a conversation with myself. But, you know, many times when I have a big decision to make or I'm at a crossroads, I'll literally like write a letter to myself. And it turns out, you know the answer, right? We all basically know the answer. Who, who doesn't know how to get in shape? <laughs> who doesn't know how to uh, be better at your job? You got to do the hard work that other people don't want to do. Who, who doesn't know how to have better relationships? You have to be fully present with people. We know, <laughs> we all know. It's that we don't know how to get out of our own way. We don't know how to stop being distracted. Near, you're amazing. You really are. Wow. Like after, after, like I'd written notes, like and things. Oh, let's, uh, we'll, maybe I'll ask this. But after about five minutes, I was like, this is so good. I just want to take notes. <laughs> like really, I just took notes well, for the last 30 minutes because it's so, like what you're saying is really, it's so useful. It's incredible. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, it's a lot of, a lot of uh, trial and error over the years, but I appreciate it very much. Well, and now even even in your your current business, are do you run it like very efficiently like this? Like, do you find that you work better it, by yourself in in designated space and then come in to do meetings when you need to? Or like, you know, the, the previous workplace was like, even if you look at pre-COVID, it was your Googles, your Amazons, these big companies that people wanted to work for. People worked in an office and there's a lot of distractions in office. Whereas what you're just, you know, to do focused hard work, you kind of want to create the environment for that and then create spaces for the meetings and those other things. And how do you see the modern workplace nowadays? That's a very good question, but you could maybe give a short. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's even more important now because it's become so easy to call superfluous meetings uh, because of the technology of zoom, where it used to be that there was this, you know, we can't get it. It was used to be difficult to get people together. So we, we valued, that time more highly. Today, it's so easy to get people together that we waste more of their time doing it. And so I think it's absolutely critical that we spread this information of, of how to be indistractable, particularly in the workplace. Near, you're, you're amazing. Thank yeah, you. really? Wow. Your, your latest book is indis, or 
indistractable. You're indistractable. the book hooked. And your previous one was hooked. That I've was been reading in... hooked. I've been reading hooked for quite a while. Um, you know, it's very, very good. It's very useful. Really is. And I and I looked at one of your courses on Mind Valley. I did half of that one. So I really do. I think your work is so important. Oh, I really appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, indistractable. And also uh, for the listeners, uh, my website is called nearandfar.com. There's actually an 80-page workbook there on Indistractable. We couldn't fit it into the final edition of the book, so we decided to give it out for free uh, at nearandfar.com as well, if anybody wants to check it out. Cool. And the workbook there just helps people how to become more indistractable. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great first step. Uh, it's a kind of a guide that you you interact with. It asks you some some very prompted questions uh, that that start you on your journey. Amazing! Thanks, Thanks you're, you're fantastic. so wonderful. Thank you for your oh, time. My pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. It was great yeah. talking to you. That was amazing. My mind uh, is. I, part, part of me feels like uh, like many listeners probably heard, haven't heard the story of the young bull and the old one. I'm not going to mention it now because it could, you know, it may not be necessarily. Um, but it makes me feel like, oh my god, Dad's been trying to say that stuff for years. I just couldn't hear it. Like, and it's it's just that's one of the most. Uh, it made me feel like such a rookie. Like, it really did. I feel like, oh my god, meetings, the amount of stupid meetings I've scheduled for brainstorming. Ready, fire, aim. Yeah. Oh, sugar. Uh, anyway, I think that's such an important message. I really do. And I'm personally going to go download Nier's workbook and have a go at it and looking at time management techniques and tools from his website. Uh, yeah, his book is indistractable. Really, really good. So uh, I, hope I really you- hope you got something out of that because it's very much kind of down to the nuggets, the practicalities, the pragmatism to how to live a more efficient, practical, productive life aimed at where you want to go, living a life of value. Yeah. So that was brilliant. And anyway, I uh, really hope you enjoyed that. If you are looking to support this podcast, you can pre-order our new book. It's called The Veg Box. It's out June 6th. It's available to pre-order now. And if you're looking for health, we've got our online courses. We've got our Good Health Revolution course, Happy Mind, Happy Shape, Happy Heart, all sorts of courses to transform your life and your well-being. So do check them out. They're out on our website. So And wishing you a productive, highly efficient, highly planned, highly organized, highly scheduled week ahead. Yeah, wow. Well, no, that sounds facetious. I think that I, I, I'm going to become oh, much more like that. Yeah, okay. I, th- I really do want to become much more like that. I thought that was gold. So anyway, thanks, Mel. Bye, 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 bye,